Let's pray. Father God, you are good. So we thank you. We lift up to you this whole service, top to bottom. It is yours. We worship you and thank you again for your word given to us, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So not that long ago, we were involved in a war, weren't we? It was this uh, war against a, a group called ISIS. And the leader of that group was a man named Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, this war is no longer what it quite once was, but at the height of his power, this man, along with his Islamic jihadist forces, supported a persecution against resident Christians where he was trying to take over out of a desire to keep his religion and his people pure from Christian infidels, he approved of the executions, the beheadings. Sure, many of us saw videos posted on that wonderful thing called the Internet. He, he approved of the executions of Christians, the brutal murder. According to NBC News... Sunni militants in northern Iraq gave Christians a zero-sum ultimatum. Convert to Islam or die. Forcing them to flee to nearby regions to escape the threat as ISIS dragged off men and women. Separating parents and children. Executing them in the name of a holy war against those who would stand for and represent the truth of our Almighty God and His Son Jesus Christ. While ISIS is no longer the threat that it once was, according to an article I found recently, it's it's from mid-January. This man Abu Bakr al Baghdadi is still alive. He's, he's hidden away somewhere. One could say that he is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I was hearing about all this, when it was going on in the Middle East, seeing the pictures of the execution on the news, on the Internet, doesn't it make you angry? Isn't it upsetting to see somebody just, just getting away with this? And you think to yourself as you're watching it, this man needs to die, Right? we're honest, don't we have thoughts like that? How dare he so boldly take these people's lives simply because of their faith in Jesus? There's Christian persecution happening all over the place right now as we speak. And in in view of these world events and, and the people involved, the passage before us really gives me pause. God has given us Government as a sword of justice and law to take care of these kinds of things. But as Christians, this passage should cause us all to ponder a couple of things, a couple of questions. First of all, how, how do I view other people in my life? How do I view the other people I know about in this world, and particularly the difficult ones? the unlovables, the unsavables. How do I view God? How do I 
How do I view God philosophically and pragmatically? Who do I know him to be, and how does that affect my behavior? How does that affect who I am? How does my knowledge of him and what I understand about him make itself real in my life? Who I am and what I do. I think these verses should remind us that God is in control. That God is still sovereign over all creation. And He's sovereign in our lives. Or has that just become something we say as Christians? Like when the disciples gathered together in chapter 4 of Acts and they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and, and the sea and everything in them. Aren't those beautiful words? They just roll right off the tongue, don't they? Don't, do we just regurgitate these things or do we really actually believe them and understand them and, and let them take an effect upon who we are in our lives? Do we know it? Believe it. Can God really do anything? Does God really desire all people to know him, to come to an understanding of who he is, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Even a man like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, God's love abounds. It is absolutely immense. Does John 3.16 say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And as we read the word of God today, let us remember that the word whoever is a word without limit. Whoever. You, me, anybody. Let's remember that his love is immense and his grace is lavish. Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 10. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We are called to put that same love and that same grace on display in our lives. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. We're going to read the first few verses of Acts 8, and then we're going to read the first couple verses of Acts 9. So be ready to flip the page there. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1, says, actually, I'm going to back up a couple verses here. Start at uh, verse 59 of chapter 7. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any were found, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. Saul, as we read these verses, these five verses that describe who he was, he was very much like our modern Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, wasn't he? We know him as Paul, that is the Greek version of his name, Paul, Saul. The wonderful Christian man who wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament that we study all the time. The man who, who preached with a boldness and an authority in, in Athens and, and throughout the Roman world. The man who fixed his eyes on Jesus and held everything else to be rubbish, to be covered in feces compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as his Savior, as his Lord. The man who died for his faith in Christ proclaiming the gospel to his last days, even in Rome itself. But he was not always that man, was he? In in the name of God, he approved of Christian executions, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. He persecuted the church. He even went out of his way to do so. He wasn't content just to stay in Jerusalem. He had to go out to Damascus, so he asked for those letters at the beginning of chapter 9, right? I want to be able to go out and drag them back here. Bound. He ravaged the church. Chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That word for ravaged, elaminato, ravaged. It occurs only one time in the entire New Testament. And there are several words that Luke could have chosen to describe what Paul was doing at this time, and he chose this word. And this word was chosen to display the fierce relentlessness with which Paul was going after Christians. He was persecuting them and executing this persecution upon them. He hated them. This, Saul was having no mercy He was merciless. He was a man to be feared and hated by the church. As he entered people's own homes, can you imagine that? Somebody coming up to your door, just walking right in and dragging you off for your faith. 
We see that very fear in Ananias in in chapter 9, verse 13. We haven't gotten there yet in our reading, but chapter 9, verse 13 says, But Ananias answered, when the Lord called Ananias to go to Paul, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord had to convince him. Go. This is what you are to do. Even later, when Paul attempts to join the disciples after he had come to know the Lord in verse 26 of chapter 9, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 reminds us that he was still breathing threats and murder against the church. To to put it nicely, Saul was an absolutely evil man. Though he was a Jewish Pharisee, he was every bit as much like the Islamic extremists when it came to the church of Jesus Christ. If this was all I knew about Paul, would I find myself praying for him? Or would I find myself breathing the same curses about him as he would be breathing about me? How do I view other people? Do we see them the same way Jesus does? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4 through 4 says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, well, what about about certain people? Aren't there certain people that are a little bit different than others? What about Richard Dawkins? He's an avid atheist. He goes on television preaching his own lines against God. He said, there is no refutation of Darwinian evolution in existence if a refutation ever were to come about, it would come from a scientist, not an idiot. You and I being the idiots of which he speaks. What about Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood? Does she deserve the mercy of God who boldly supports the murder of unborn children? What about Susan Herman, the president of the ACLU? who would rather see the Ten Commandments torn out of any public building, to see no sign of Christ on any federal or state property. Or what about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who has Christian men, women, and children beheaded for their faith? How do we view these people? Do we recognize that they have been created in the image of God? 
and therefore they have an inherent value. James 3.9 reminds us that with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Do we realize that though they are sinful and undeserving, they too can be saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Do we give God enough credit for for his ability to change the heart of a man? Do we believe that God can take a Pharisaic jihadist and make him one of the greatest missionaries, one of the greatest forces to have ever lived on this earth for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do we deny God the full extent of his love, grace, and mercy? That same love, grace, and mercy that has been extended to us. We are only here but by the grace of God. As we, as we judge some by our actions or even our inactions to be unfit for salvation. If we believe God is able, if we believe God wants all men to come to a knowledge of him, if we believe these people are made in his image and have an innate value as such, do we act on it? If we believe it, do we pray for them? Do we take our philosophical view of God, the things we we sing about, the things we say about him, the things we read about him, and do we make it pragmatic? Do we bring it into real life? Do we apply to our lives what we know of God? Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. Starting at verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for the man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened." This is what God did in the life of Saul. He took him from being one of his most hardened enemies to being one of his greatest advocates and ambassadors. While Saul still stood as his his enemy, right? He didn't wait for Saul to to come to some kind of self-revelation. Oh, wait a minute, maybe there's something to this. No, he took Saul while he stood against him, while he was still breathing threats against the church, while he was still persecuting Jesus, God took him. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who was it that God used for that moment of change in Paul's heart? While Paul was still confused, God said, a man named Ananias is going to come and he's going to lay his hands on you. You're going to receive back your sight. God used Ananias as a tool, as the tool that, that just totally put that change in Paul's heart. God used a person. God used a guy like you, a guy like me. I don't know about you, but I tend to give up too quickly on people who are difficult or don't seem to be interested in the things of Christ. I, I might pray once for them, but there was, a, there was a man at a previous church that my wife and I attended And he was well into his 80s. I think he was around 84. And he had been married to his wife, who was a believer, for for 50 years. She prayed for him. She didn't give up, and he never believed. She passed away praying for him that he would come to know Jesus. And it wasn't until after she passed, praying for 50 years, his heart was changed and he came to know the Lord he saw her faithfulness for all those years and when she passed that was the turning point in his heart and he accepted Jesus as his savior and he went to be baptized at 84 praise God she didn't give up she trusted in the Lord to have power to change the heart of her husband even after she was gone And he stood up as a witness to her faith and God's faithfulness. 
her pursuit of him in prayer was integral to his coming to faith in Christ. We had the privilege of being at his baptism. And it stands as a witness to me to, to get out of myself and not just to pray one time for somebody, but to continuously pursue them in prayer, to let them know, I am praying for you. You are special to me. You are in my heart. You are in my prayers. And I am lifting you up before Almighty God. I need to do that more. We need to do that as a family in Christ. Because in the, in the hands of God, not only are they the unsavable, very savable, but they could become one of the greatest forces for the gospel mission on this earth that has ever lived. Who can you think of to pray for? Who in your life, who in your soil, your sphere of influenced lives doesn't know the Lord? Put them on a a post-it. Stick it on your mirror or in your Bible. Let's get it into our heads that God is in the business of saving the lost. And if it were not for the grace of God in my own life, I would be just as lost as they are. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Maybe the person you're praying for will be saved by grace as well. Perhaps if we pray for them earnestly, our hearts will be softened towards them. And and if our hearts are softened, maybe we will find the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And if we share the gospel with them, they could come, they they just might become the next person to fill the gap, to share the gospel in their lives until Jesus Christ returns. Will Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi recognize Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior? I don't know. But if all I knew about Paul was the first few verses of chapter 8 and the first couple verses of chapter 9, I wouldn't have thought that he would ever come to know the Lord either. Who is that person in your life? Who is the one that you won't really share with? Who, Who is the one that you've stopped praying for? perhaps never even began to to pray for. Saul was one of those unsavable types, the kind we give up on quickly. We we discard them, taking the election of God into our own hands. They won't listen to me. They don't want to hear about the things of Christ, and we prejudge this, don't we? Oh, that dude has tats, and he has a foul mouth. He doesn't want to know the Lord. Really? Who doesn't want everlasting life and the richness of knowing the truth? 
They need it, even if at this moment they don't realize it. They want it, even if at this moment they don't see it. They don't know it, and they push it aside. Is, is our view of God having an effect on our lives lived out? Who is it in your family, in your soil that you no longer pray for? Who is it that has offended you in such a way that you can't share time with them, that you just don't want to share the gospel with them, don't want to share Christ with them? The things people do or have done against us, we, they are wrong. They are sinful, and we don't rejoice over sin. But, Ephesians chapter 4, be angry. This, this passage calls us to be angry. Recognize sin for what it is. It's okay. And do not sin ourselves. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, soft-hearted towards others, forgiving one another as you have been forgiven, as God in Christ forgave you, as Stephen forgave Paul. Chapter 7, verse 60, the very last verse right before chapter 8. As Stephen was being stoned, as Saul was standing there approving of this very act, falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He forgave them. He had better things to look forward to. He saw them with his own eyes. Do you have that hope? Do you know where you are going? Do you have everlasting life? Have you been made alive together with Christ, seated in the heavenly places? That verse is in the present tense. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Now you have everlasting life. What is it to hold something against somebody on this earth? Does that have any value in our lives? Or is the gospel of greater value? Is forgiveness of greater value? We have been saved by grace, by the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. His blood spilt in our place. Not because we deserved it, but because he loved us. Let us go and do likewise. Let us find an unsavable and share Jesus Christ. You never know what God may do. He just might change their heart the same way he changed yours.
the same way he changed mine. Let's take our, our, our knowledge of God and make it real in our lives. Walk it. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word that shows us the miraculous, that shows us the impossible made possible, that, that Lord, we, we need to consider that you are God Almighty, that you are still just as able to change hearts as you ever have been. Lord God, I pray that you would make this family right here a force to be reckoned with for your kingdom. Not walking in anger or malice or slander, but encouraging, building one another up and sharing Christ, being a light, being a lamp that is not hidden, being salt in this earth, making things tasty, preserving. Lord God, give us strength to do this. All for your glory and not our own. All for your honor and your greatest good. And we praise you, Father, that you always make your greatest good, your highest honor, for our own greatest good. You are that good. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.